Thank you, Jim. What a wonderful insight, the prayer. What was it, Mary Margaret? Prayer doesn't have any, no distance. I like that. What do you do when the life God has promised you looks nothing like the life God has given you? What do you do when the life God has promised you looks nothing like the life God has given you? I grew up in San Antonio, and my first high school there was round in shape. It's weird architecture. It was uh, classrooms shaped like pies, and we all sat, you know, and and the teacher was in the, the small part of the pie, and then we all sort of sat, you know, it was just weird. And the, the halls were at the perimeter on the outside, and so you'd basically walk around in order to get to the classrooms. And so it was uh, our, our rival high schools called us the round school for squares. <laughs> it's kind of touching, isn't it? Well, new students, we had a, a kind of a running joke that we would do with new students that would come up and ask for directions. We'd tell them to just go over there and turn the corner and uh, the class would be right there. Well, they'd circle the building for hours. It was funny. We'd sit and watch, and they'd make one lap and two laps. They'd just keep making laps around whatever the classroom is until they figured it out. But I've thought about uh, my high school a number of times in relation to my walk with God because it seems like God is occasionally pulling pranks like that in my life. And honestly, if you think about it, he probably does the same in your life, that he points the direction, and we walk and walk and walk, and we never turn a corner. We're just making laps, waiting for God. What do you do when the life God has promised you looks nothing like the life he has given you? Well, Joseph's story gives us an answer for that. Genesis chapter 40 is where we'll be looking today. So turn there, if you would, to Genesis chapter 40. We're in a series on the life of Joseph and uh, one of our favorite characters in the scriptures because we can easily identify with this young man. Uh, and he had a tough upbringing, or I should say a tough uh, uh, late teenage years. Early teenage years were tough in the sense that he was daddy's favorite. And this was great when you were around just daddy, but when your 11 other brothers were around and they were jealous of you, this was not so great. And so you can just imagine what it was like to be around them. Well, his brothers ultimately sold Joseph into slavery and Joseph was taken down to Egypt as a slave and became the servant, the head servant, for a man named Potiphar, who, who was the captain of the bodyguard of Pharaoh, of, of, uh, of all people. And we saw uh, in the course of Joseph's events that he was uh, in Pharaoh's house and he prospered in Pharaoh's house until Pharaoh's wife tried to seduce Joseph, and, and Joseph resisted, was falsely accused, and now we find Joseph in prison in Genesis chapter 40. 
But we see a couple of times in the text we've seen in chapter 39 that uh, the Lord was with Joseph. In fact, look, you're in 40, but look back at 39, a couple of places if you would. Verse 2 and verse 3 were told twice. The Lord was with Joseph, verse 2. Then verse 3, uh, the Lord was with him. Then look at the end of the chapter, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph, and then the end of verse 23, the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. So whatever happens to Joseph, even though it's bad stuff that keeps happening, God blesses him, and wherever Joseph goes, God is with him. And God is causing Joseph to prosper, even though the context in which Joseph finds himself, a lot of us wouldn't call that prosperity. We would call that struggle. And yet in that context, the Bible tells us the Lord was with Joseph and the Lord was causing Joseph to prosper. Interesting, seeming contrast. Well, look at chapter 40. It came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Now, we're introduced to two characters, but let's set them on the shelf for a second and look at what these verses tell us about Joseph. Look at verse 3. We're told a few things here about Joseph. First of all, it says that he was in the house of the captain of the bodyguard. Who was that? That was Potiphar. Right. So I don't know why you just tell, tell us Potiphar, but Moses is being creative here. So he says the captain of the bodyguard. But we know that's Potiphar. So he is in the house of Potiphar. Where was he prior to this? In the house of Potiphar. But now he is in a special part of Potiphar's house called the jail. Or literally, it's referred to here as the jail, but if you look at the Hebrew text, the Hebrew text refers to it as the house of roundness, which is unusual. Maybe it was like a fortress or something that it was round in shape and so it was called the house of roundness, but it's just translated here the jail. But house of roundness, what does that remind you of? My high school. Right. So when I read that in the Hebrew text, I thought, ah, that's like my high school. It's like this jail. And it's just this house of roundness. But it's also a fitting metaphor for what I experienced at my high school of going round and round and round and round. That's Joseph. In this chapter, we're going to see him in some sense, God telling him, just walk and there's no corner to turn. You're in the house of roundness, or we could call you're in the round house. Joseph's in the round house. That is, he is just walking, and there is no corner to turn. So he is in, fair, in uh, Potiphar's house, in the jail part of his house, that's called the house of roundness, and we're also told he's there for some time, which meant that uh, Joseph was there you know, for days, literally, the Hebrew says, for some time. And he is in, uh, he's in this place, we're not told here in Genesis exactly how long it, 
is, but we do know because we're going to see in the next chapter next week that Joseph is at this point 28 years old. We know that because we'll see in the next chapter something that happens two years later and we're told that he's 30. So we know that he's 30 in that chapter, so we know he's 28 in this chapter. How old was he when he went to Egypt? 17. So that means he has been in Egypt 11 years at this point. 11 years in the house of Potiphar and in this part of the house of Potiphar. We don't know how long he was in each one. But if you can just imagine, I mean, he was at least a year in Potiphar's house, controlled over Potiphar's house, dealing with Potiphar's wife. It was at least a year, I say, because there had to have been a growth season. Because the text says that Joseph was blessed by God in the field, which meant that there had to have been a season of growth. So we'll say at minimum he was in Potiphar's house for a year, which means he's been about 10 years or so in the jail. So we've got what? In this chapter, 23 verses. It's hardly a page in our Bibles, yet it represents 10 years, at least 10 years in Joseph's life. So don't overlook that fact. And something else. We're told that he is bound here in um, verse 3. It says that he is bound or Joseph is imprisoned. It says he is imprisoned. The Hebrew text says he is bound. So imprisoned gives the impression that he had a measure of freedom, but bound also gives us a different insight. Now, last week we looked at Psalm 105, and I said that we'd look at it a little closer. So keep your finger here in Genesis and turn to Psalm 105, and let's give it that closer look. Because the, the Hebrew text there gives us some insight into Joseph into Joseph's feelings and his emotions that we don't get in Genesis. And I think it's helpful to add this in, especially when you think about the fact that Joseph was here for, for 10 years. Psalm 105, look at verse 18. Psalm 105, verse 18. We get some insight that Genesis doesn't mention. It says, They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons. So the Hebrew text here for fetters refers to that which was put around the ankles. So he had these chains around his ankles, and the uh, in verse he was laid in irons is the reference to his uh, uh, an iron collar that would go around the neck. So picture that he's got leg irons and he's got an iron collar. And the Hebrew text tells us that he was afflicted. They afflicted his feet with feathers. With feathers. <laughs> Wouldn't have been great if it had just been feathers. With fetters. And the Hebrew term, therefore, afflicted, doesn't just mean pain. It means humiliation. Think of this. Day in and day out, you got these chains on. And... Have you ever tried to sleep with an iron collar? Have you ever tried to go to the bathroom in chains? Have you ever tried to bathe in chains, assuming he got to bathe? This was Joseph's life every single day, and he had the responsibility over others. It wasn't like he could just go sit in the corner and read. 
He had responsibilities. And in, in light of all this as well, God was with Joseph and was blessing his work. Look at verse 19. We're not done. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Until the time that his word, meaning Joseph's word, came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Or literally, the Hebrew, you might have uh, he himself there. Uh, it's the Hebrew word there, nephesh, which means usually we translate that soul which is not a great translation because it implies that it's just your spirit or the immaterial part of you. But the Hebrew word nephesh means soul, but it also means body. It means emotions. It refers, it's a word that refers to the whole person. And that being the case, we're told in verse 19 that his whole person, uh, I'm sorry, verse 18, he himself was laid in irons, meaning his whole person was, was chained that this is a clue into Joseph's emotions as well as his physical struggle. And then in verse 19, we're told that God tested Joseph, the word of the Lord tested him, until the time that his word came to pass. The first part of that verse is referring to Joseph's word, till his word came to pass. What's that mean? It's referring to his dreams. Remember Joseph's word? was that, he, that the Lord gave him that insight that he was going to rule over his brothers. And so we're told here, until the time that Joseph's word happened, God tested Joseph. And the word here for tested is the Hebrew word that means refining silver. So putting all of this together, Joseph is there in prison for let's say 10 years. I mean, even if it's five years, that's a long time. He is there for years. And while he's there, he's got an iron collar. He's got leg irons. Emotionally, he feels chained. And the Lord is refining him during this time. Joseph is struggling. Okay, back to Genesis now. But notice also, as we read in Psalm 105, God had a purpose for Joseph. God wasn't just struggling him. He was refining Joseph. He was preparing Joseph. He was getting him ready. Joseph didn't necessarily understand all the details, but we're told in Psalm 105 that God had a purpose, and that was refining. It's not too big of a leap already to just say he's doing the same thing in our lives, is it? You know, we could maybe not point to iron collars or to um, particular afflictions like Joseph had, but some of us have physical struggles. Some of us have emotional struggles. Some of us have spiritual struggles. And in some point in our lives, we have all of that. And we're told that God refines us through these processes. Well, the first principle that we can glean from our text here today actually comes from the Psalm 105 text, but it's simply this. God's priority is the work he does in us rather than through us. God's priority is the work he does in us rather than through us. It isn't that the Lord doesn't want to work through us. He absolutely does. 
But his priority is the work that he does in us. That's first. Before God works through us, God works in us. Before God would use Joseph in the great way that we're going to see Joseph used, God was refining Joseph to make him usable. Before God brings you to a place of greater influence in his plan, he's going to refine you. And this is not a one-time deal. This is a lifetime deal. These are stair-step processes that God brings us through. And sometimes those, those stairs plummet. There's an elevator going down in order to go up. And sometimes the Lord works that way. Believe me, he works that way. And it is hard, but it is part of his refining process. His primary work is in us, not through us. God may set you aside for a season to learn lessons you could learn no other way. And he's in no hurry in these set-aside seasons. I mean, think about Joseph. He's, I mean, he's, in a, he's not doing the kind of job that we would all aspire to. He was in the place that God had put him there. He may have felt like, you know what, Lord, I could go ahead and take over the family business now. I mean, I've proven myself to my dad. He put me in charge. When I was stuck wrongly in Potiphar's house, I rose to the top there, took care, ran things, things prospered. God blessed me. In the prison, God put me in charge. Now, once again, I'm learning. I'm, I could take it now, Lord. But instead, God continues to leave Joseph on the shelf, in the sense. Because God's refining Joseph, refining his character. Long-term influence comes as a byproduct of character. We, we learn that from our parents, whether it was positive or negative. We have long-term influence by our parents. If they were people of good character, their character influenced us. If they were people of bad character, their character influenced us. It was that long-term effect. So, back to Genesis. We're in these first few verses here looking introduced to the cupbearer and the baker. Somehow, these two guys had offended Pharaoh. And you kind of get the impression that Pharaoh was pretty easily to be offended. I mean, how does a baker offend Pharaoh? It was like, you know, the cake wasn't very good yesterday. Into the prison you go. Now, the cupbearer, he has a little bit more access, you might say, to the, to the king, to Pharaoh. The cupbearer's job was basically to take the bullet. His job was to taste everything before Pharaoh tasted it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. How'd you like that job? Let's sit and watch, and if you don't die, then I'll eat my meal. So, but somehow they had offended Pharaoh, and Pharaoh stuck him in the prison, and so happened to be in the same prison Joseph was in. The captain of the bodyguard, we know that's Potiphar, we're, t we're told, put Joseph in charge of them. Which, again, sort of implies, going back to last week, maybe Potiphar didn't believe Potiphar's wife. And he was like, if, if, if someone tried to seduce my wife and I had the power, <laughs> I'd take off their head. Potiphar didn't do it. He stuck Joseph in his own house in the prison and put him in charge. It's like we just kind of save face and win-win all around. And he's there for days, the text reads. Look at verse 5. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt who were confined in the jail both had a dream the same night. 
each man with his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, We've had a dream and there's no one who can to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. I've often wondered, when Joseph asked them, why are your faces so sad today? I mean, they're prisoners. <laughs> like, why wouldn't they be sad today? Why is today different than any other day? But Joseph clearly had a relationship with these guys to notice that there was a change. And Joseph clearly also had a positive outlook on the whole situation. Or who cares why they're sad today? I mean, think about it. When you're kind of down in the dumps and you see somebody else down in the dumps, you don't ask them what's wrong because they might tell you. <laughs> and then you just feel worse, right? But Joseph somehow had risen above it all enough to where he actually cared about somebody else. That is amazing in and of itself. What an incredible young man. He asks them what's wrong. They explain, well, we've had dreams. And we both had a dream last night. So what are the odds of that happening? Joseph's putting two and two together. These aren't just regular old dreams. This isn't bad pizza from the night before. This is the Lord. And so he says, do not interpretations belong to God. So we'll see, we're going to see that their dreams served for Joseph at least three purposes. First of all, one came immediately, which we'll see here in just a second. Secondly, another would come in a few days, which we'll see here in a few minutes. And another would take two more years, which we'll see next week. So three purposes. So immediately, it was the opportunity to interpret these dreams. It was a test for Joseph. These are the first dreams we see in Genesis since Joseph had his dreams back in Hebron, back in Israel. And how many dreams did Joseph had? Two. How many dreams did these two guys have? Well, one each. Totals two. So we got two dreams, and the very next thing that happens when there's dreams, two dreams, Joseph is involved in both. Joseph's putting it together. This is of God. And he says that. Interpretations belong to God. Tell it to me. In other words, I can interpret dreams. He didn't say this, but he knows he interpreted his own dreams. And so what, is this, what does this test prove that Joseph had not given up on his dreams? Because otherwise he would have said, you guys had dreams? Ha! I had dreams. Let me tell you, they don't amount to anything. My dreams where I was going to rule over my, my brothers, my brothers sold me into slavery and I've been here for 11 years. Take those dreams and just, you know, forget them. Joseph didn't say that. That is amazing. That means that he has not given up on his dreams and he hasn't given up on God because he said God interprets dreams. So, they share the dream, their dreams. Look at verse 9. So, the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. 
and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. So I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. So the cupbearer's crucial role, as we've described, is to taste the wine before Pharaoh tastes it, to make sure it's not poisoned. His role was to take the bullet. And very clear interpretation, Joseph says, in three days, Pharaoh is going to restore you to your office. He's going to lift you up. He's going to honor you. That's what the idea of lifting up your head. He's going to honor you, and you're going to have a full pardon. And because this is going to happen, Joseph realizes this guy's going to have an audience with Pharaoh. Joseph makes a request. Verse 14, he says, Only keep me in mind when it goes well for you. And please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. I love these two verses because we get a peek behind the Superman suit. We get a peek behind the S on his chest into his heart. Joseph is hurting. He's longing for justice. He wants to go home. He wants to get out of prison. And in fact, the words that he uses here he speaks of the prison with two words. It's called uh, a house and a dungeon. The, the, her, the term house is sort of the short version of the roundhouse. But the term dungeon is literally the word pit. It is the identical word of when Joseph's brothers threw him into the pit. So Joseph's making a connection. I did nothing wrong back in Israel to be thrown into the pit. I've done nothing wrong here in Egypt to be thrown into this pit. And in an unusual moment of personal request, he asks that uh, he be remembered and that, that when this guy gets an audience with Pharaoh, that Pharaoh would bring about justice. For all Joseph knew, this guy was an answer to prayer. I mean, good grief, God's clearly involved. Maybe now it's time. Maybe now I can go back to Israel and rule over my brothers. Like, like this is supposed to be going. Well, the baker hears Joseph's good interpretation, and now he shares his dream. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket there were uh, some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh off of you. Not quite the same result. <laughs> you know, 
You know, when you go to a fortune teller, you know why fortune tellers make money? Because they tell you your fortune. Who would go to a fortune teller if all they said was, you're going to die in three days? No one would do it. So it's always good news. Well, here, Joseph, these two guys both have a dream the same night. Both share their dream that something's going to happen in three days, but the interpretation is totally opposite. Now, in three days, if that comes true, what does that say? Joseph can interpret dreams, right? I, uh, I just have to laugh thinking about what the next three days must have been like. As the chief cupbearer and the baker are there together. <laughs> Oh, if I was the, uh, I don't know that would be this cruel, but it'd be kind of funny to say, you know what, it's only two more days. <laughs> and I'm out of here. Tomorrow, I am out of here. And uh, for you, you know, do you hear birds? <laughs> anyway, I can think of all sorts of cruel ways, but I'm sure none of that happened. These events give good news. First, it gives good news about Joseph, and second, it gives good news about God. First, the good news about Joseph is that Joseph had not forgotten his dreams. As, I, as we said earlier, uh, he said that uh, don't interpretations belong to God, and then he, gives, he, go, he goes ahead and is willing to interpret it. He still believes that God will bring about what God reveals. And the second good news about God is that God had not forgotten Joseph's dreams because God allowed these dreams to be interpreted. And we're going to see they were interpreted correctly. Look at verse 20. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Joseph could interpret dreams. This would have been incredibly encouraging to Joseph. God has not forgotten me. I have not given up on him, and he has not given up on me. God is hearing my prayers. And Joseph also would have assumed that the cupbearer would have shared with Pharaoh. Of course. I mean, Joseph requested that. And so imagine the days following this. Joseph is listening, you know, for anything, any noise that's coming down the hall, or surely today they're going to open the doors and let me out. But days turn to weeks, turn to months, as we'll see, turn to years. And nobody came. And the Bible tells us here in verse 23 what Joseph had to figure out just by waiting. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. As amazing as that sounds, that's the reality of it. As soon as the cupbearer got his spot back, he forgot that Hebrew guy in the prison. What do you do when the life God has promised you looks nothing like the life he has given you? Joseph's story tells us. And here's the second principle. God's plans for us include preparation and waiting. God's plans for us include preparation 
and waiting. In other words, what do you do when the life God's promised you looks nothing like the life he's given you? You wait. It's just a matter of time. And Joseph was learning this. Noah waited 100 years for the flood. Abraham waited 25 years for Isaac. Moses, 80 years to liberate his people. David, at least a dozen, we're not terribly sure, certain. Jesus waited more than 30 years before he was presented as king, and he waits still to reign as king over Israel. Waiting, waiting. Oh, we hate to wait. Waiting on God is the worst part and the hardest part of the Christian life. I recently upgraded my smartphone. You know, these things are rigged to require upgrading. In fact, just today, I noticed that I needed to upgrade, up, you know, update it. There's updating and there's upgrading. Well, I had just upgraded it where it's like a brand new actual physical phone, and I had to go through the process of putting my old information onto the new phone. And it wasn't working, so I was on the phone with the, the tech who was walking me through the process of it all, and the technology wasn't working to where the tech could watch on my screen what was happening on my screen. And so all the tech had to do was just listen to me describe it. And like every 30 seconds, he would say, well, what's it doing now? Well, what's it doing now? And finally, I said, look, continuing to ask me about it isn't going to make it happen any faster. <laughs> I literally told him that. I said, well, feel free to work on something else, and I will let you know when it's done. We can just sit here in silence. It's okay. And as I often do, I think, you know what? That's probably how God often feels when I'm praying. It's almost like the Lord says, do you really think that when it's time I'm not going to say anything? I'll let you know. Until then, you just wait. Just wait. What I love about Joseph's situation here is that God encouraged Joseph. This, this deal with, the, with interpreting the dreams, yes, it has a very important part of the story, as we'll see next time, that, you know, what happens next time. But it also has an important part of the story in these years that Joseph wait, waits for the next time because God encouraged Joseph. Joseph wasn't just waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and hoping that God hadn't forgotten him. God gave a real example. I've not forgotten you. You can still interpret dreams. Your dreams are still going to come true. My promise for you is still going to come true. And the reason I love this is because our Lord God does the same in our lives. And thank God he does. If we will be attuned to the Lord whether it's through a scripture that just somehow amazingly relates to exactly what we're going through. Or maybe it's a message that we hear from our pastor that Im amazingly is exactly what we need to hear. Or some song we hear on the radio, or just some offbeat comment, you know, from some Hollywood movie. If we will stay attuned, we will hear, and I don't mean the voice of God, but I mean the Holy Spirit will encourage us along the way. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't forgotten you. Keep going. Don't give up. I haven't forgotten you. The Lord did that with Joseph. The Lord does that with us. 
But God's plans for us include preparation and waiting. The preparation is the refining that Joseph was going through. The waiting is just God's time for it all. God's time for it all. Well, one more principle. One more principle, the final principle. God sees our faithfulness in obscurity as preparation for increasing influence. God sees our faithfulness in obscurity as preparation for increasing influence. Our faithfulness when nobody knows us, when nobody sees us, when no one cares about us in obscurity is preparation for one day when it will really matter. Think about Jesus. Now, obviously, he wasn't obscure, but from the sense of, a, of, of mankind, he was nobody prior to his starting of his ministry. I mean, he was just this kid growing up in Nazareth, in Galilee. I mean, no big deal. But think about Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes, just listen to Philippians chapter 2. He says, Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So you see, in obscurity, he is faithful as a servant, even though he was God in the flesh. And then Paul says, for this reason, God exalted him above every other name. So back to the principle. God sees our faithfulness in obscurity as preparation for increasing influence. It was true with Jesus. We're going to see it was true with Joseph. Again, think about our Lord Jesus from the time that he could hold a hammer, uh, you know, 30-plus years, however long it was. He was driving nails and chiseling mortises, and he's the son of God that can walk around and heal people. And he's building tables. Talk about untapped potential. You got somebody who can do what Jesus can do, and all he's doing is building chairs? Talk about a huge waste of time. On the contrary, somehow we can't imagine just the, the wonder of the Incarnation. But over those three, three and a half decades, the Father is, was preparing Jesus for a ministry of three and a half years. And because of his obedience, we're told, even death on a cross, God exalted him to the highest place. Joseph and Jesus are like this, but they weren't the only ones. Think about Ruth, David, Daniel, Esther, Matthias. All of these people, before their influence that we know them for, were nobodies. They were in obscurity, and yet they were faithful. God alone gave the promotion. God alone got the glory for it all. Now, you may think, well, I'm not a Joseph. I'm not a Ruth. I'm not an Esther. Well, you know what? They weren't either at the time. They were just people like us. But people who decided to trust God, even amidst their failures, what David was full of failures, but a man after God's own heart. And God exalted David the same as he did with Jesus, with Joseph, with these others that I mentioned. The Lord was with Joseph, and Joseph remained forgotten for two years. Now, think about your situation for a second. Again, it's not exactly the same, but 
your name and your circumstance. The Lord is with, put your name in there, in your difficult situation, in your difficult job, in your challenging marriage, in your financial hole, in your struggle with some physical malady. It's not a contradiction. God is with you in your struggle. Joseph saw what seemed to contradict God's promise as an opportunity to display faith. Satan wants us to see the contradiction as an opportunity to abandon our faith. All this is going wrong with you. God's not fulfilling his promise to you. God's not faithful. God's not good. Try plan B, and I've got the plan. But God says, no, be faithful. Trust me. The time is coming. For example, parenting is like this a lot. Marriage is like this a lot. For example, a husband and wife will surrender massive amounts of time to marriage, to parenting, to grandparenting, understanding that God is in no way limited by this. God's not limited by this. Think about lives that are cut short in their prime. Think of the Apostle James in the book of Acts who was killed probably in his, I don't know, late 30s, early 40s. Think about those throughout history like David Brainerd or Diedrich Bonhoeffer or Betsy Ten Boom or Keith Green, that great Christian artist that died in a plane crash, killed in their prime when they were serving God and were incredibly fruitful, and God takes them home. And yet the kingdom of God, there's no hole left in the kingdom of God or in the work of God because God is not limited by any of that. Now, we, think we can easily apply that to lives that are taken in their prime, but think about our lives as well where we are not as productive as we would like to be because we're sacrificing so much of ourselves for others. God's not limited by that. God can take the fish and loaves of our lives, even with all we're surrendering, and he can do incredible things if we'll just trust him for it. Whatever the reasons, I'm convinced that God delays because he wants to give us more than we're asking for. What would have happened? What would have happened if he, Joseph hadn't been forgotten? If the cupbearer didn't forget Joseph, but immediately said, Hi, Pharaoh. Glad to be back. By the way, I made a promise. There's this Hebrew guy in prison that, you know, uh, has really been given the shaft. And we need to give him justice. And what if Pharaoh had said, you know what? You're exactly right. First of all, he probably would have said, ah, forget it. But even if he said, you're exactly right, best case scenario, what would have happened? Joseph would have been released. Joseph would have been given a first-class escort back to Israel. Joseph would have been restored to his father. The brothers would have been shown for the rascals they are. And a few years later, they all would have died in the famine. Happy ending. No. Joseph didn't know all that. Joseph didn't know about the famine that's coming. Hopefully it's not too much of a spoiler for you, but that's what's coming. <laughs> but God knew. Now, you and I don't know about the famines that God's preparing us for, but God knows. So while you are languishing in whatever prison you may feel like you're in, God is with you. God is refining you. God is preparing you and me for a future that only he knows about. So cling to Christ and don't give up because God knows the future and he wants to use you better prepared in that future.
Let's pray. Our Father, we love this young man, Joseph. So grateful for his life recorded here, for the struggles that he endured, for his faith that he continues to display, and for that wonderful few verses in Psalm 105 that share his struggle. Thank you that he struggled and that in the midst of this he was able to be faithful. Father God, we struggle, and we can so easily identify with Joseph in many aspects of his life. And so, Father, we ask that we would also identify with Joseph in his faithfulness. He believed you. He didn't give up on you. And thank you for encouraging him along the way. We pray that you would encourage us also in the midst of our challenges and that we would be open to your encouragement. We wouldn't refuse it, but we would receive it. We would hear it, and we would embrace it and let it be fuel to keep us going and persevering so that uh, we can be refined and we can be prepared so that when that season comes that you want to use us on a greater level, for whatever reason that is or whatever effect that is, that we'll be ready. Thank you, Lord, for the scripture that gives us this insight, and now we pray for the strength to apply it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.